Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 208 of the MyFit Podcast. This week on the show, Craig and I are fired up to chat with one of the country's most accomplished mental health specialists in the field of anger and emotional management, Dr. Christian Conti. Dr. Conti is a familiar figure on TV and radio, and he is also a prolific writer, powerful communicator, and sought-after media expert. Dr. Conti also has an incredible TED Talk titled, Why I Chose to Go to Prison, which was released after his best-selling book, walking through anger. In addition to Dr. Conti's unquenchable passion for helping others, he also holds the highest anger management certification possible and works with people in all walks of life, from football players to prison inmates. The story of how we got connected with Dr. Conti is unique to say the least. My dad, Craig, who has been a co-host on this show a handful of times, came across Dr. Conti about seven years ago when watching Coaching Bad, a TV series that aired on Sunday nights. My dad was addicted to the show and was eager to learn more. After the show ran its course, my dad sent an email to Dr. Conti thanking him for the valuable information he shared to millions of viewers just like us. To our surprise, Dr. Conti not only replied to the email, but also ended up endorsing Craig's book, kept in contact, and now got the opportunity to interview him on this show. It's amazing what can happen when you make the effort and reach out to somebody. I think it's a great lesson for anybody listening to know that one, anything is possible. And two, there's a lot of value in simply reaching out and saying thank you to someone who has influenced you and taught you some valuable lessons, even if they were on TV. Sometimes you never know how or where a relationship can ultimately go. Pretty dang cool if you ask me. Some of the topics we dove into today were first, what were some of the lessons that Dr. Conti learned on his Spike TV series, Coaching Bad with Ray Lewis? Then we talked about how many people are diagnosed with anger issues. Then we dove into understanding yield theory, which is a theory that Dr. Conti created and wrote a, uh, an incredible book about. Then we talked about motivation by anger. We talked about how does self-talk uh, get involved when it talks about managing anger? Where does self-talk lie? Then we talked about lessons learned working in a prison, working with inmates. And we closed down by talking about five errors of communication. This topic is unique to the show. And I was so excited to talk about anger because in 200 episodes, four years of talking with people, I really haven't had an anger management specialist on the show. So some of this information is new, very enlightening. And I highly encourage you guys to take some notes and take a deep dive into this stuff. Whether you yourself struggle with anger management or you know somebody uh, that struggles with anger management, I think it's a really great topic for us to all increase our awareness around. 
If you find the show valuable, consider leaving a rating, review, and share it on your social medias. Your five-star feedback helps the show grow tremendously and also helps to bring on more amazing guests like Dr. Conti. Without further ado, enjoy this episode with me, Craig, and Dr. Conti. Let's go. My Fit Podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. With none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, and no BS. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the MyFit Podcast, you can now receive a free Element sample pack with any order by using the link www.drinkelement.com forward slash MyFit. Again, that's www.drinklmnt.com forward slash M-I-F-I-T. Go get yours now. Dr. Conti, welcome to the MyFit Podcast. I'm so excited to have this conversation today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I got to tell you, I go back to 2015 Spike TV, Coaching Bad. It was previewed and I thought this this is going to be interesting. And it was so good, Dr. Conti, that I would not record it and watch it later. It was like seven o'clock Sunday night. I got to be in front of it. I I can't wait for uh, an hour to see what these two have come up with. And so I'm just really interested. What were some of the lessons that you and Ray Lewis got from that Coaching Bad series? Yeah, well, first of all, probably the best um, thing from it was he and I became really close friends and we're like brothers now. We have been since then. Um, so that's probably what I think about. It was most meaningful to be able to develop a true, genuine friendship and connection. Um, but in terms of the experience, it was it was great. Like, I really liked I, I enjoyed doing that show. That was the first TV show I did. Um And we brought in these coaches from all over the country. And what's fascinating is when you bring in people from diverse areas, you uh, you, the projection can be we're going to see all these very different approaches. But ultimately, we saw the same thing, which is ego gets in the way of coaches being effective. And so across the board, no matter where you come from, no matter your sport, ultimately for coaches, they have to understand not only how to manage egos, which is a big part of coaching, but also how to lead by example and managing their own ego. So we saw that across the board. That was a big, a big lesson. I'd say that was probably a primary lesson um, in that experience for sure. You're one of your, um, uh, keys is walking through anger. Your your book and one of your kind of go tos is how to walk through anger. I'm curious for the people out there that are listening, Doctor Conti. What percentage of people do you think have admitted anger issues? Is it everybody? Is it some people? Who can kind of relate to this as we set the table for walking through anger? So I believe um, I believe everyone can relate to it because this first of all, walking through anger is about so much more than anger. It's about how to handle any intense emotions. And, you know, I spent the last January will be 25 years for me doing the work I do. And um, whether I'm working with people, celebrities on TV, maximum security prisons, whether I'm working with 
um, you know, world world class Olympic athletes, UFC fighters, people in the military, veterans, or everyday people. I've come to this this profound realization that the world boils down to two kinds of people, and ultimately, DJ, it's this: there are people who have issues and dead people. So. <laughs> they're alive and they're listening right now they have issues we all have issues so i think everyone can relate in terms of who admits or owns up to an anger issue um that varies and it varies and here's my here's my insight for people a lot of times so i co-founded a center for people convicted of violent crimes in the state of california and sometimes people would come because it was an outpatient and they would say well i don't know if i have an anger problem and so I'd say, here's my guiding principle for you. If one person tells you one time in the heat of an argument that you have an anger problem, you might not have an anger problem. But if that same person tells you multiple times or more telling, if multiple people tell you, then you probably have an anger problem and you just can't see it. So the reality is people see your actions, not your intentions. And if your actions are demonstrating anger, it doesn't matter what you mean to be projecting. If that's what you're projecting, that's what they're, that's what the world's reading. Do you find it interesting, Dr. Conti, that coaches, I don't know if, if the word is get away with, but the way that they sometimes treat their players with a, a lash out of anger is not a, a red flag. We almost, we see it on the sidelines, NFL, uh, whether it could be a college, could be like you uh, worked with uh, peewee coaches who are just losing it, where it's not like everyone's going, oh, that's amazing, but people or coaches seem to get away with that a little bit more. Is that what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a culture of certain certain things that are accepted when it comes to sports. I mean, and if we look at the larger context, some of that can be healthy in terms of how people express things. Once things are inappropriate, they're inappropriate and they're inappropriate across the board. But let me give you an example of what I mean by some parts of sports that can be healthy. For example, the us versus them. It's It's my group versus your group. That's generally not healthy in life. But where we can keep it lighthearted and have fun and actually put that out there is with the culture of sports. Hey, I'm from Pittsburgh. I'm a diehard Steeler fan. And, and I, you know, I did a show with Ray Lewis and he's a ultimate Baltimore Raven. So, you know, that's the enemy, right? And we can think in healthy, fun, lighthearted ways when we're talking about sports. But when we get to the boundaries of how we act within that framework, it's really important to understand that coaches, first and foremost, are role models. They're role models. And if they show their athletes that they can impulsively lose their temper, then it is going to be quite difficult for them to turn around and tell them to have control over their impulses because they're showing you're, every moment. You're seeing, I'm seeing you act impulsively. And then again, it's not an either or. It's not an either or. It's not just so clear it's this or that. It, it can be complex, but it's worth really sitting with. It is a both and. In other words, yes, we don't want to be impulsive and reactive. On the other hand, there is a fire and a, and a passion for wanting to win and be the best you can be. So there's a fine line. There's a balance. Um, my preference or what I try to teach coaches is to be intentional. If you need to be fired up, be fired up, but be fired up intentionally. Don't be fired up because you lost control. That means you got to work on your self-control. That kind of leads me to my next question. I've heard a few people say that a coach can intentionally, as you just stated, lose their lid maybe two or three times a season and people respond. And respond like, oh, we got to get our act together. And then, I don't know if it's a law of diminishing returns, there's a point where it's like, 
okay, this, this person is just loud, and you just learn to tune them out. What, what are your thoughts on that? So this is basic um, psychology. When you think about movies, every time there's a movie sequel, we need to have more blood, more guts, more, more sex, more. We just want to have more because we have what's called psychological tolerance. And the challenge with that, or at least understanding that context is this. If you start to scream and you get your point across, you're right. Occasionally, that can make a big difference at the right time in the right way and under control. It can make a big difference. But if you do it constantly, then it becomes psychological tolerance. So then all you become is the person who just screams and yells and people understand that they're not going to even hear your message when you really are fired up. It's the boy who cried wolf principle. Like you can only cry wolf so many times. That's why it's better to instill a genuine passion and internal motivation to your athletes, because if they're internally motivated, you don't need to get to the raw, raw stuff because they want to win because that's their mentality. Nice. I had a, a coach and athletic director say, you would come back to, you have an anger issue. And he was just constantly blowing it off until he saw the video of himself where somebody had taken and said, okay, coach, take a look at this and and wow was it an epiphany for me i mean is that something that you prescribed you have people do that is that is that a valuable experience all the time all yeah. the time so i i mean i take a game filled a game film approach with everything i train uh officers corrections officers police officers but i was working with a major college basketball team uh two weeks ago and i said to the coach we're in the locker room and the coach can get frustrated with his athletes their body language, because their body language isn't very, um, it doesn't show what maybe they want it to show. So what I did is just take a picture of the room, take a picture of the room, have everybody look at the picture. Let's look it up like game film. If I know I'm supposed to cut left on this pass on this play and I don't cut left, it doesn't matter what my intentions were. It only matters what my actions were. In the same way, if I come in with poor body language, my head's down, my shoulders are sulking. Um, when I find out news that I don't like or want, I, I sulk. It doesn't matter what I mean for my body language to convey. It only matters what my body language is actually conveying. So, yeah, I do that. Just did that. Uh, and then I prescribe having the coach do that. Record videos, record team meetings. I'm sorry. And then play it back for the players. It's profound. Like this is a profound technique. I started doing it years ago. Um, and even at the University of Tennessee with the football team, I would have them when they were talking about their position and what they were doing, I would have them describe it as a teacher and then watch the film back and say, show us what you see. If you came to you to teach this to you, what would that look like? Video is powerful. Video is a powerful technique that we have. So for me as a professional counselor, we were trained by videotaping our sessions. We would audio tape and videotape our sessions, and then we would be able to watch what are we really coming across as versus what we think we are. So I love that video mentality. I call it game film approach, and I implement it across the board, different fields um, with businesses. Like I do it, it's it's powerful because again, my message is people see your actions, not your intentions. And um, yeah, I came up with that at a, there was a moment where there was a, a guy who was assigned to my group and he, he was mandated to be in this personal growth group and anger management group. And he was really, really angry. And anyway, it's a powerful story, but I want to, I don't want to get off topic with it, but that's how I kind of came up to like, when people see your actions, you can't just keep telling them what you meant to do. You have to show them. So uh, there is no, 
you know, out of bounds in this show. What what happened with that story? You you videoed him. You got a chance to see it. Well, so what with this guy? He said um, he was went to he went to jail, but he never hit his wife. So he said, "I'm in jail, and I never hit my wife. I never physically touched her." And um, so I knew what happened. I read this police reports and I let him be angry for a while because he was mandated to 52 weeks. But after a while, I said, if you're ready to talk about it, let's talk about it. He said, definitely, because it's still messed up. I, I never should be in this group. I never should have gone to jail. I never touched my wife. So what happened was he took a hunting knife and he was in an argument with his wife and he turned around, and he stabbed up an air mattress. So he's like, all I did was stab up an air mattress. I never touched her. So he was sitting in the front row of my group. So what I did is I took a, a ruler, a 12 inch ruler. And I had him sitting there and I turned around and I I'm turned around, I'm stabbing and I turn around, I'm standing over top of him. And I said, what are you thinking right now? And he goes, that I should have gone to jail and that I should be in this group. <laughs> and I said, so if you're your wife and I'm you, and he's like, I see. So in that moment, I said, people see your actions, not your intentions. It didn't matter. I believe you. I can believe you that you weren't going to hurt her because you didn't touch her physically. But how in the world could she have known that? And he was like, you're right. From that moment on, the rest of his time, he was a big proponent of the group because he was like, I never realized what I looked like through someone else's eyes. So by showing it to him. So sometimes in a therapeutic environment, I will reenact something to have somebody be the person they did it to. And for men in particular, I always talk about sitting down in an argument. So if you're having a disagreement um, with your wife or girlfriend, sit down because like I'm six feet, 260. So my wife, I'm significantly bigger than my wife. If we are standing up, it's not a fair position. It doesn't matter that my life is devoted to peace and she knows who I am. It matters that in her perception, it's not okay for me to stand up and be like, you know, upset because what is that? It puts her in a different uh, predicament. And I think oftentimes men, especially strong, powerful men, take it for granted, thinking, well, I'm not going to do anything. Well, yeah, but people don't know that. I'd love to get into some of your material from the book. And one of the most, uh, one of the underlying themes is yield theory. You spent 25 years crafting this concept for the listeners that haven't read the book yet. Can you walk through a little bit? What is yield theory? What isn't it? And what does it look like in our daily lives? Yeah. So yield theory in a nutshell is this. It is a, it's a way to communicate effectively with people. As you know, when we get, um, when we get defensive, whether we're, if a bear walks in the room right now, we can get our fight or flight kick in, right? We're like, Oh no, there's a bear here. So I'm either going to fight, flight or freeze. Well, as equally as a bear walking in the room, we also know that if you're in a relationship and your girl looks at you and says, we need to talk. In that same way, you're going to have a fight or flight response kick in. This is neurological. So I always tell people what I teach isn't rocket science, but it is brain science. So what yield theory is this? It's a way to meet people where they are, to get around their fight or flight response and speak in ways that can be heard. So that means no matter what you're experiencing emotionally or what others are experiencing emotionally, it's how do you get around that and speak in ways that can be heard? And what I have found is that it ultimately boils down to doing three things. That's it, three things. It ultimately comes down to listening, validating, and exploring options. That's what it comes down to. And um, I always tell people, like, it's easy to be skeptical of others. It's easy to be skeptical of people, especially if you disagree with them. But how, how, how often are we skeptical with our own egos? Like, we our own egos, we know that as long as we're alive, we still have more to learn. So why not, when our egos are certain about something, why not question it? So that's what I did. I questioned what I was doing. I said, what am I really doing? And that's how I came up with those three core actions. It's listen, validate, and explore options. 
And I, anyway, about, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago now, I was speaking at this mental health convention and there were 500 uh, people there. And this woman came up to me at the break and she said, uh, that's it. That's your big theory. Three things. I said, yeah, but if you think about it, all Bruce Lee ever did was move, block and hit. And he did pretty well for himself. So, <laughs> yeah, it is three things, but it's how you move, how you block and how you hit. And in yield theory, it's how you listen, how you validate and how you explore options. And for people who are interested in pursuing a deeper path to our own psyches, yield theory is also predicated on seven fundamental components. So it can go really, really deep. Um, I was uh, uh, heavily impacted by Joseph Campbell. I was heavily impacted by Carl Jung. So analytical psychology was a big part of my training. So we can go really deep into the psyche, but ultimately yield theory is a way to connect with people. And at its most basic level, you never have to go into all that depth. We can go into this. Let's say you want to communicate with someone who's simply not listening to you. How do you do it? How do you communicate? Well, you listen first. Instead of talking at them, you listen first. And then whenever they say what they say, you validate that rather than trying to say, well, you shouldn't feel like that. You validate it. And, and I don't mean validate like you check a box, like you're going through a bureaucratic checklist. Like, oh, yeah, I, I listened, I validated. Now they, now they have to explore options. I say don't just validate until you think you validated, but validate until you do what I call drain the limbic system. In other words, as long as someone's in their emotional part of their brain or their limbic system, they're not in their their higher level thinking part of their brain, their frontal cortex. And so if you can drain that limbic system and have them really get out those emotions, then they'll be more ready to accept you exploring options with them. And so probably the shortest tale I can give you in terms of what yield theory means is this. Um, Imagine that we're supposed to lead a group of people up a mountain. So we all, we, three of us run up the mountain, we get to the top of the mountain, and then we just start screaming at all the people because they're nowhere in sight. So we're like, they're still at the bottom of the mountain. Hey, you should be up here with us. We had it hard. We started there. You know, you should be up this way. And we can scream all day at them, but they wouldn't see us, let alone hear us. So we would be known as the fool on the mountain. And in the same way, if we really wanted to lead those people, we would have to have the self-discipline to leave where we are, to go meet them where they are. In that same way, that happens every time with yield theory. If you want to truly meet others where they are and not just put lip service to it, it means listening, listening to what they're ready, willing, and able to do, and then validating that. And then, and only then, can you help them explore options in a way that will actually work for them. So that's really yield theory in a nutshell. And the whole should piece, isn't that where we start to get into the most trouble? You should do this. And I think our intention is right. It's just how it comes across like, okay, yeah, that's what I should be doing. So how do you, how do you get around that individually? And just instead of just giving them the solution, here's what you should do. What, what's your thought process? How do, how do we get people to kind of come to their own conclusion on some of these things? Yeah, so I'm a practicing Zen Buddhist. And one of the things that we practice and, and reflect on is this. I'm not there to tell anybody how to live. Like I, I can help hold a mirror up for you. I can help uh, find a way to communicate effectively, effectively with you and circumvent your ego, but it's not my job to tell you how to live. And when people get in that position where they say, well, it's my job to tell other people how to live. Well, that's, that's what I call the cartoon world. The cartoon world is your world of shoulds. People should think, feel, believe, and behave the way I think they should think, feel, believe, and behave. And then there's the real world, how people actually think, feel, believe, and behave. And as long as you align your expectation with that cartoon world, you're let down, but it's not the world that's letting you down, it's your own expectations. 
So I spent the better part of my career teaching people how to align their expectations with reality. So one way to get out of shoulds is this, realize that, sure, you might have great insight. So would we, if we were the fool on the mountain, we might have great insight. But if you're saying that insight at people and they can't hear you, then what good is it? What good is it really doing? You get to beat your chest and be like, I'm right. Everybody's wrong. Everybody's stupid. They should all listen to me. At the end of the day, you have to ask yourself if what you're doing isn't effective, then it doesn't matter all the shoulds. People should take on my opinion. Okay, great. But they're not. So how do you meet them where they are? Well, you meet them where they are. You listen to where they are. And if you're only listening to convince somebody that you're right, that's inauthentic. So people can see through that in a second. And I think that's one of the discrepancies between people who hear about yield theory and say, oh, I do that, and people who actually practice it. Because I don't listen to people so that I can ultimately convince them to think the way I do. Not at all. I really listen to understand truly where they are. And although many people can hear that intellectually and understand it, it takes years of practice to truly get that down, to say, I can listen to you, and maybe you end up at a totally different spot than what I would pick for you, but I'm okay with that because you're not me and I'm not you. So I think that's a real challenge for people to learn how to do. So how do you, let's say you're, you're on the receiving end and the amygdala on the other side of the equation is full. I, just a simple example, I, I fly a lot, you fly a lot, and you got someone who's just ripping into a gate agent where there's a delay, something's happening, and, and that person behind the counter did not delay the flight. But if you're in customer service or you're a teacher and you've got, uh, maybe it's a parent who is livid, doesn't have the whole story, how do you keep your cool? What, what are the strategies to kind of keep your cool? And how much time do you give them to, to empty the, the amygdala until, or is it, do you try to cut it off at some point? Well, I think if you're genuine, and this is this is really a difference between like sales, because you could hear people in sales say, oh, yeah, we just got to validate how they feel. No, I'm not talking about just the sales to get them to believe what I want. I mean, really listen. And if someone comes up and they're complaining about their flight and you really look at them and you're like, ah, my gosh, I see your pain. Like, I see your pain. Like, I can't imagine what you're going through right now and what you're saying you want to get to. Like, that's. That's crushing to have to sit there and wait when you know what you want to be at right now. I, if I could do something personally to change it, I would. I can't. Um, unfortunately, I'm just a middleman right here, but I hear you and I'm really, I, I feel for you. Um, you know, and then you're really, truly genuine with the way you're empathetic toward them. What happens is people are, they de-escalate significantly faster because you truly hear them. Like imagine that person that wants to get home. Maybe they want to get home to their child. Maybe they want to get home to a loved one who's dying. Maybe this is their last opportunity to see them. Maybe they just want to get home because they're in a relationship with someone and they feel like if they're not there on time, the person's going to leave. Whatever it is, it's important to them. And when you can truly validate that, again, not just give lip service to it, when you truly feel it, like one of the fundamental assumptions of yield theory is if I lived every day as the other person, mm -hmm. so not just walk a metaphorical mile in their shoes, but if I had their cognitive functioning, their intelligence, if I had their affective range, so their ability to experience emotions, and I had their life experiences, I believe I would have done everything that they did, which means when they're screaming at me, if I truly put myself behind their eyes, I'd be screaming at me too. So now instead of taking it personally, I go, yeah, this person's suffering. They're in pain. And so I don't judge them. I just assess that they're in pain and I validate from that perspective. 
And it really is transformational when you can be around somebody who really empathizes, truly validates you. It's phenomenal. So where's that line of, you're not going to talk to me like that. I mean, a parent-child situation where the kid is just angry and is kind of losing it in the grocery store and talking back. Yes, you want to give them some space to empty it. But then there's also a piece of, hey, hey, that's not going to work here. So I, Sure. So that's a great, great question. So when it comes to parenting, I, I teach, I wrote a book called Zen Parent, Zen Child. And I talk about my four C's of parenting, choices, consequences, consistency, and compassion. And when we see it in a grocery store, a parent, a child speaking inappropriately to his or her parent, um, it's important for that parent to set boundaries, right? It's important for that parent to say, listen, I appreciate that you're angry and you want this right now, but it's not okay to speak to me like that. And because you're choosing to, this is going to be the consequence. Now, that would be an immediate effective solution. However, it it's almost like somebody coming to DJ. Look at DJ. That's an in-shape young man right there. If I come to you and I say, hey, DJ, uh, so what do I do? Just push-ups one time and then I'm good? You're going to be like, no, you got to do it consistently. That's how I speak to parents. I say, listen, it's great for you to take in this information here, but you have to practice this. So for example, for, for my own family system, one of the things my wife would do with our daughter is before we would go into a store, she would practice when she was a toddler. Hey, we're going to go into a store. You're going to see things. There'll be things that you want in this store. We're not going to buy those particular things, but you're welcome to look at them and enjoy them and tell me what you might like for later. And we practice that over and over again. And when you practice that, and then sometimes parents will say, well, well, that takes too long. Okay, great. Well, then don't, you can't have the same results without discipline that someone can have with self-discipline. That's just a fact. You talk about validating. I just want to go into a little bit, uh, a little bit deeper because sometimes I think listening to other podcasts you've been on, you told a, a tremendous story a couple of years ago about a boy you sat with who just lost his dad, like 48 hours prior. And you just sat with him for 30 minutes, didn't have any conversation. So I would imagine that would probably go in that validate bucket. Sometimes it's not words. Sometimes it's just sitting with people. And sometimes it is words. What are some of your kind of go-tos? If we can just dive a little deeper, give some listeners some more applicable things to either say or not to say in order to validate, what does that look like? Yeah. So first of all, I appreciate you even bringing him up. That young man, that was, that was a powerful experience. I was close as I ever came to crying in a session. Um, I never cried in a session because I always believed if I break down and cry, then my client's going to be like, dear God, the professional can't even handle this. <laughs> so I, yeah, I always felt like it was my job to be this a rock for my clients. But that was the closest I ever was. His father had just been murdered. But um, yeah, and I think that's a good point that exemplifies that sitting with someone and not trying to solve it. Like I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to fix someone's emotional pain. And for some listeners, they're like, what are you talking about? Aren't you a professional? Aren't you supposed to fix? I'm not supposed to fix it. I'm supposed to help you gain insight on how you can handle your own situation. One of the reasons why I don't break down with clients is not only just to be the rock for them, but I also know that they can get around, over, under, or through whatever obstacles are in their way. And because I truly believe that, I feel confident, almost excited when people come to me like, listen, I'm excited because right now, as down as you feel, as helpless and hopeless as you feel, I'm going to be excited to watch you get through this. And sometimes that's all that it takes to show somebody the hope. Like I've seen this pattern so many times where people come and say, 
There's nothing I can do. Oh, there is. And not only that, you're going to surprise yourself. So sometimes sitting with someone and being like, listen, I believe in you. And right now I just want to be here. I want to be here with you. I don't have the right words. I don't know what to say. I know I'm here with you and I believe in you. So I believe you can get through this. The problem happens with ego. Our egos kick in and say, well, I want to help this person. I want to, I want to be the person who saves this person. I want to be the person who fixes this person. I want it to be about me. It's not about you. Like giving advice when people aren't ready for it is so unhelpful. And some people say, well, it comes from a good place. I'm trying to help them. No, you want them to take your advice. And some people get upset when people don't, they, they didn't even take my advice. So now they have their own problem and you're going to give them the problem on top of it, that they're not ready to take your advice because you were on top of a mountain, they were down there and you're mad. So now you're just compounding it. So it really takes a lot of self-awareness, which is why I say, you know, um, the, the Buddha said one may conquer a million men in battle, but the greatest and best warriors are able to conquer themselves. It really is about that constantly looking within what role do I play in this interaction? And in an interaction where you need to validate, like you're asking about DJ, I think the main key is to sit with someone, put yourself mentally behind their eyes, even if you don't tell them that's what you're doing, and try to imagine that pain that they're going through. And what happens is this, you are sharing the load then. And if you think about what compassion really means, you're actually sharing the load with that person. So imagine that that person's psychological, mental, emotional pain is in the form of a giant log and they're holding it and they're holding it. And you come over and you give them true compassion. Well, that is equivalent in my book to holding that log with them. And maybe you help lighten the load and then eventually, and you don't have to do it right away, but eventually when they're ready, you can help convince them that they don't have to keep holding on to this log. But as long as they are, you're happy to help hold it with them. And I think that's a really powerful metaphor for understanding how we can be with people, not try to fix their problems and truly validate them. So how much of a role does self-talk play in managing your own, your own anger? Let's, you're ticked off that you didn't play well in a tennis match or in a, in a soccer game, et cetera. How much of a role does self-talk play? It's enormous. It's a, it's a majority of what you do. And listen, it is okay to be angry that you didn't play well, that you didn't do your best. That is really okay. I think the misunderstanding, oftentimes I get so many people all over the world will ask, they'll be like, well, I'm not supposed to have anger. Anger is not wrong and bad. It's Anger can be a great motivator. You can say, listen, I can't believe I'm not living in the best version of myself right now. Good. Get angry and get fired up about it. It's how you use that anger that makes all the difference in the world. But anger can be a great, great motivator. Now, again, the challenge is this. So, for example, if you are a young person listening and you didn't do your homework and you're mad at yourself about that, good. Sit in that for a little bit and go, do I like this feeling? I didn't do my homework. It kind of sucks. And if you really don't like that feeling and you sit in it rather than trying to hurry up and fix it, then you'll go, I'm never going to not do my homework again. What a great experience. If you don't like your performance because you didn't prepare very well, I remember when I was a, a speaker, I was in my early 30s and I went somewhere and I was doing well speaking. So I thought, well, I don't even have to prepare for this talk because I already know what I'm talking about. And I remember getting up there and just talking after not preparing. And it was just awful. I was like, I'm as embarrassed. And then I was like, well, I'm never going to do that again. So I sat with it and thought, I'm never going to go somewhere and not prepare 
And even though at this point in my career, like I don't, I, I can just rattle stuff off because I live this and I've been doing this for so long. I still want to know exactly what I'm going to be. I want to have a framework for what I'm doing. So yeah, anger can be a great motivator. Self-talk is everything. It's it's not everything. It's most things. It's most things. Matter of fact, I caught myself on saying everything because one of the key things is to get away from extreme words. <laughs> um, and so I want to be mindful about using the word everything. But self-talk is really, really important because your thoughts are directing your inner world. You're literally the only person who has access, unrestricted access to your own mind. And so if you fill your mind with extreme words, nobody, everybody, always, never, then you're going to feel in intense ways. But if you fill your mind with accurate, balanced words, you're going to feel in accurate, balanced ways. So three weeks ago, I got to surprise my son here. We went down to a, a workshop with about 120 students, something like that. And he's like, well, I'm not going to talk, right, Dad? I go, no, you're not going to talk. And so sure enough, we, we got him up front. And one of the exercises that we did actually for the first time is everybody got a three by five index card. And the simple question was, when you're in a, your sport and you're not performing well, what is your internal dialogue? And I didn't give a parameter of positive or negative. I just, what, what's your internal dialogue? And we did the kind of the summary and just give him a little. Yeah, it was pretty shocking, Dr. Conti. Basically, out of 120, we discovered that, or I discovered that about 80 of the post-it notes had negative self-talk and about 15 had positive and about 15 were what I call neutral. So a large majority were negative self-talk. And some of the stuff was, was quite honestly from high school kids was, was pretty mean. Some cuss words and some things that, man, it just was hard to even read. Yeah. I suck. Uh, what am I doing out here? So what what do you what do you say to that high school athlete or, or any athlete who's not having a great performance in the moment? I mean, yes, we sit with it. I didn't play well, but what about in the moment where it's not going well? What are your recommendations there? I mean, you got to get present. You got to get very present. What can you do from this moment forward? The more you live in the past, the more you play and try to perform in the past in a place that doesn't even exist anymore. Kobe Bryant once got interviewed and I didn't get to record it or see where it was. I just saw this once and it was pretty awesome. But this interviewer asked him, he, she said to him, well, talk some about some about your failures. And I wish I could have captured. I mean, obviously somebody did capture it, it was an interview, but they, his face, because he looked at her like she was from outer space. He's like, she, he never even heard the word. He was like, what are you talking about failures? He was like, I have a bunch of experiences I learned from, but they weren't failures. And so here you think of an elite athlete. It's not about a failure. I'm not terrible. I didn't do what I would have liked to have done. So I learned what to do now, but the past is gone. So the more time you focus, and I do this with professional athletes, professional basketball players, professional football players. I do this with uh, fighters, world-class fighters. And the past is gone. So as long as you're creating a world where you're trying to navigate the past, your navigating world doesn't exist and never will again. The only world that exists is the present moment forward. So what I say is what can you do from this moment forward? That's all that matters. So get present. If you don't like this feeling, okay, what can I do to change it? Boom, I can do this, this, and this, and this. So that's my advice for athletes is get present really quickly. What, what have I learned? What can I do from this moment forward? Nice. I love the some of the stories from like Michael Jordan when he came back from his retirement. And the the myth was that some rookie popped off and said he was wearing number 45 when he came back. You know, 45 is not 23. And all of a sudden, the, the next day, Jordan lights it up. Shaq tells a story where uh, Tim Duncan just had his lunch and 
he makes up this story that Tim Duncan just blew him off for an autograph when he was 15 years old. And so is that, what are your thoughts on that? Is that, is that a game that you can play with yourself? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, some of the people who are really great at sports, it doesn't always translate to being the best at relationships. It doesn't always translate to being the best at other areas of, of your life. Um, there sometimes there can be this edge in sports where people make things personal. If you remember Michael Jordan's retirement speech, like here's the greatest, probably, you know, and I grew up in a generation where I believe he's, you know, hands down the greatest athlete that ever lived and greatest basketball player ever lived. And if you look at his retirement speech, he was calling out people from junior high and high school, anybody who ever doubted him, he took that fuel. And he, yeah, there were millions upon millions of people all over the world who believed in him and thought he was the greatest ever, but that's not what he focused on. He focused only on any kind of things that could fuel his motivation. And, you know, I think that when you talk to Tom Brady, you see a similar mentality of constantly seeing what, what fuel can I use? So, that can translate into being really good at your sport. Um, what I try to teach people is that you can have that. And if you find the essence of it, the Zen of it, you don't have to also blow your relationships. You don't also sacrifice things outside of your life. You can still have that edge. Like when I compete, like I'm going to be, I want to be the best at anything I do always. I'm always going to compete. I'm not going to define myself by it, but I'm going to, I'm going to definitely fight as if this is the most important moment of my life because every moment is the most important moment of your life talk a lot about about presence and anger and letting go of anger and you spent a lot of time in prisons and i'm just ultra curious what are some of the things you've learned there and i could i just could imagine i've never been inside of a prison but i'm thinking about people that are there inmates that are there there's probably a lot of anger within them and anger within those cells anger at either the mistakes they made on themselves or the people around them the system etc cetera, etc cetera. when you come in what are the types of you know strategies you have to let go of some of that anger or redirect it talk to me a little bit about the prison life and what you've learned there yeah, I mean, way too many lessons to get into a, a, a short period of time. But I'll, let me try to think of let me hit a part of your question. Like one of the anger that I see in general, this isn't everybody, but in general, a lot of times the anger for incarcerated individuals is on other people. It's on this person did this, this person did that. And many people who are struggling with incarceration are in the spot they're in. Um, primarily because they believe it's the outside influences that direct their own choices. So what I do is I try to teach people a different path. Like I say, is one thing led to the next in the story of all of our lives, and that's certainly true with anyone who's incarcerated. And if one thing led to the next to get you here, then what path can you take moving forward? Well, the first part of your path is going to be this, understanding that, yes, in our cartoon world, this should have happened, that should have happened, and this person shouldn't have done this, and that person shouldn't have done that. In the real world, this is the world you live in. And whether the world is fair or whether the world is supposed to be the way it is, this is the world you live in, and I want to help you navigate this world. So one of the biggest overall things I see after all these years, again, my role in yield theory is to meet people where they are and find out what each particular group and individual needs. But in general, I think I can make a fairly safe generalization that for the most part, especially people who are newly incarcerated, their focus is on other people and how other people did this and other people did that. And one of the things that we see is as incarcerated individuals mature, 
they own responsibility. So they start saying, you know what, like, for instance, with a lot of guys who are lifers, so, you know, in Pennsylvania, life means life. So if you're in prison for life, um, actually, Ray Lewis and I, we just, this just came up on a, a memory. The, I was, got a text this morning from this, but we did a podcast um, in a prison. Uh, it was called Greaterford at the time. It's now uh, SCI Phoenix, but we were in this prison and we sat down with a group of lifers and we did a podcast live, our Tackling Life podcast. We did wow. it live in the prison system with Secretary John Wetzel, greatest leader I ever met, um, Ray Lewis and me. And some of the men talked about on this podcast how they got to a point in their lives where they realized if this is going to be their life, then there's no more blame in the system and everybody else in their lives. There has to be accountability. We have to make this environment the best for ourselves. And we see that arc. And I've seen that for more than two decades in a prison system. There's that arc where people finally reach a point where they say, this isn't about living for other people. This is about me. And what kind of environment do I want? A lot of young people, when they get incarcerated, they're still trying to act tough and run games and game the system and get over on people. Um, but then after a certain point in their life, they realize, I can't do, what am I doing? What am I trying to get away with anymore? This is my life. This is your only experience of life. So that's a big lesson to understand. And then we, if we can extrapolate that lesson from maximum security prisons and put that into the ears of everyone who's listening or eyes, if you're watching, I would say this. Instead of thinking that's out there, that information is out there, that's for pe oh, people who do that when they're incarcerated. Think about how you do that. Think about how you do that. Think about how you blame the person who cut you off in traffic and, and they caused your day to go bad. Think about how the person didn't respond the way you wanted it to them when you talked to them on the phone the other day. And it's their fault for not responding the way you wanted rather than how are you not taking responsibility for the part you play? And the more we do that and realize, again, there's two kinds of people and you're one of them then as long as you're alive, focus on what you can control rather than what other people should be doing. So I'm curious on, I mean, thinking about the prison, but sometimes we're prisoners of our own minds in one way where somebody said something to us and we just, we've, we hold on to it and we create that grudge. And I think we all know logically when you hold on to that, it's punishing you, not them, but it's hard to get beyond some of that stuff. How do you, how do you do it? I mean, you, somebody said something, somebody did something, and you were, it was just an un, felt unfair. Like it just, it happened to you. And, and now I got this anger inside a, a grudge towards somebody. Well, how do you get beyond that? Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm 49 years old. And I would say at this point in my career, everything I've done, thousands of people I've worked with all over the world. Um, I quit counting after 20,000 hours of clinical counseling hours, you know, where I'm sitting down with people, I'm, I'm working with them, I'm writing up the session that I'm writing at the end of the day about it. So I'm analyzing, I'm not just sitting down talking, I'm analyzing over 20,000 times. And what I see with that and my own path of personal growth is that it really does come down to the cartoon world, real world. That's why I'm, I teach it all the time. Like, it, the anger people are holding on to is it shouldn't have happened. And here's the thing. Your anger can be logical. You you know, you're right. You're right. Technically, you're right. Maybe they can put that on your gravestone. Here lies the person who was right about everything. Never connected. <laughs> you know, like, it, so you're right. But it doesn't matter how you think it should have unfolded. It matters how it did unfold. And more than that, it matters how you responded to how it unfolded. Um, anybody can have peace when the world is exactly the way they want it to be. It's, can you have peace when things are going 
poorly for you. There was a king years back, he wanted to have a painting of peace. He said, I would love to have a painting of peace. Somebody got to show me what it is. So people from all over the land, they painted pictures of saints and and holy people and angels and, and peaceful, serene nature images. But amongst all those paintings, there was one painting of a ship in the middle of a storm and there's you know, there's rains pouring down. It's dark. The barrels flying over the ship. People are falling off the ship. And um, the people who were collecting the paintings, they were like, oh, we shouldn't have had this in here. And the king says, no, let me see that. And he looks at it more and he sees all this chaos. But on in all that chaos, there's a bird sitting on the bow of the ship. And in the midst of that, the bird's eyes have peace. And so the king says, that's the winner. That's what peace is. Peace isn't unfolding when everybody's sitting around a fire singing Kumbaya or everybody's believing, thinking, feeling, doing what you want. Peace is being able to have self-control regardless of what's going on around you. So yeah, you can, till the day you die, talk about how that person shouldn't have wronged you and focus on that. Or you can say, okay, this didn't unfold the way I wanted it to, but what what if the world focused in on my mistakes? What if the world focused in on what I've done to hurt others? I did a video recently on grudges and I'm trying to help people understand this. You hold a grudge for people you lock them in that one moment of time. You make them your anger target. You you talk about everything they did. Could you imagine in your own life when you minimize the hurt you caused others that you were somebody's anger target, that somebody's holding a grudge about you and you go, well, that's not the same. I didn't know. It doesn't matter. And what you did and what that person did to you isn't the same as what someone else did to someone else. But if you really, if you had to hold that moment of your life that you were unconscious and you did something we all make mistakes. We all hurt people. Why dwell on the other person's mistakes when you wouldn't want the world to dwell on yours? And so it's hypocritical. And, and I try to hold up a mirror for people to see that. And once people really, truly see that, you don't want to waste time on that. You say, you know what? It's time to let go of this and it's time to move forward. I'd love to close down the conversation the way you close down your book. And similar to game film, we can learn from positive game film. We can also learn from negative game film. I love how you flip the script at the end of your book. You talk about five errors of communication, what not to do. Sometimes that can create some real clarity for people. And the first one is error of approach. Can we walk through that? Yeah. So I, real simply, I do this. Every time you communicate with people, I found that there are five basic errors we make. The first is the error of approach. So as soon as I come up to you, if I'm like, look, we need to talk or let me tell you why you're wrong, <laughs> you know, the, immediately you shut down. And so if I shut you down from the moment we interact, that's what I call the error of approach. That's the very beginning start of that. Perfect. And I'll go, if you want me to flip through yep. them real quick, I'll yep. give you a quick version. Yep, please do. So the next approach, uh, the next error is what I call the error of interpretation. So there's a difference between what people say and how they say it. And if we focus too much on what they say, we miss out on how they say it. We can misinterpret what the meaning is. And we see this all the time with text messages. Um, there's a funny uh, show, Key and, Key and Peel. Peel. Yeah, yeah. Yes, they hilarious. This, they did a skit on this with text <laughs> messages. I have to look it up. It's hilarious. hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And it's a great, great teaching tool to look at because you know, the text might say one thing in words, but the tone was totally different. Um, so the air of interpretation, then there is the air of judgment. And that occurs anytime we judge people rather than assess them. You know, one of my strengths, I can't sing, I can't dance, but I'd say my superpower is I'm really not judgmental for people. Like I, I'm just not, I, I'm not a judgmental person. Like I assess you, I can assess, I can say, look, this is dangerous. And if past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior, then this person needs to remain incarcerated or whatever, but I'm not judging it because there, but for the grace of God, go I, how do I know I wouldn't have done the stuff that you're doing? 
And the way I avoid that is I simply assess behavior. That's it. I assess behavior. I'm not judging it. I'm not saying I would have done it differently. I'm saying I assess behavior. So then there is the air of language, and that occurs whenever we use extreme words. So this, whereas the air of approach occurs from the moment we interact, the air of a language occurs at any point during the conversation. You never listen to me. You always do that. And so we shut people down. All these errors occur when we shut people down. But then the last error is called the air of omnipotence. And I borrowed that particular term from uh, authors Kell and Mueller from a book called Impact and Change. And they studied a bunch of game film, basically, of counselors. And they saw that when people take responsibility for what other people do, that's the air of omnipotence. Like, I'm not responsible for what you do. So as a professional counselor, we leave, if you leave the session and you take what we talked about and you change your life, I didn't change your life. You changed your life. And if you don't do any of it, I didn't ruin your life. You ruined your life. So I'm not responsible for what you do. I'm responsible to give you my absolute best because I look myself in the mirror at the end of every day and have to say, did I give the world my best? That's what I'm responsible for. What you do with it, that's up to you. And it kind of circles back and ties in with what we talked about from the beginning, which is your role in life, at least from my perspective, is not to fix other people, not to fix their emotions, not to fix them. I hold up a mirror for them. I offer them insight. But what they do with that is entirely up to them as my journey is entirely up to me, as yours are for you. So I hope that helps. Well, what a what a pleasure. I was uh, telling DJ that when that show came on 2015, just your genuine spirit and the, the breakthrough that you had with so many uh, coaches. I got a chance to run a youth baseball league the first two years out of high school, and it just it just spoke to me and – uh, I, I made a goal when that show was on, uh, watching you. I'm like, someday, someday I'm going to get a chance to be face to face with you. And it almost happened a month ago in, uh, in the Pittsburgh area, but I, I can't tell you how much it has helped me. And I think so many other people, just your, your genuine spirit, Dr. Conti is, is second to none. And, and, you're, you're around, your energy leads you, as, as you say, and, and your energy uh, is, has such a profound effect on me. And, and I look at your YouTube channel, how many people come back and say, hey, this has been a game changer. I know that you say, hey, it's not me, it's not me, but it is you in, in one way. It's your ability to put yourself out there and say, I, I want to take my skills and I want to I make a difference. And so I just wanted to Thank you, number one, for taking the time and, and uh, seven years. It's been worth the wait. <laughs> hey, thank you. That means a lot. I appreciate it. Listen, that 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 show, I, one thing I said on that show was, as long as you're not asking me to act, then I'm cool. I can, if all I'm doing is counseling because they were you're worried about the TVs. I'm like, no, listen, when I was a professor. I was a tenured professor. And I remember kids saying, hey, can I Skype my friends into my class so they can see what this is? I don't even know what Skype was. I'm like, I, I don't care, whatever. You want So somebody somewhere else is going to watch this. That's cool. And the kids always audio tape the classes. So I was so used to being recorded that when it came for the TV show, I was like, as long as you don't ask me to act and be somebody I'm not, I'll counsel people all day. I'm not. I'll do that all day. And so I, I really like that. And I'm grateful. And I appreciate hearing that you had a, a vision of us connecting because honestly, whenever um, with Ray, when I was, um, when we had moved back to Pennsylvania, I was listening to a, a motivational tape for lifting in the morning, like on YouTube. And it was Ray Lewis. And I said to my wife, I said, you know, 
he has just had a phenomenal career. I know we're in Pittsburgh, but like I really admire not only his career, but how he drives things. I would love to lift with him one day. And I just had a vision of lifting with him. And it was like less than a month later, I got a call. Hey, you want to be on a show? Ray Lewis is wow. there. Like I just had such a clear vision. And then I remember the first time lifting with him, it was awesome. And then one of my favorite things to do is be able to lift with him. Because Ray Lewis tells you you have one more set, you have one more no set. One more set. <laughs> You're doing it. So, but yeah, it's good. So, hey, thank you very much. I'm happy to come on again in the future. If I can help you, let me know. And I'm grateful to see that you're a great role model for him. Um, uh, our daughter is off to college here next year. And so super proud of her for getting an academic scholarship. And I'm excited um, to the, for her to come along on a path that's going to be similar to mine, like your son's doing with you. So that's great. I love it. Best, best relationship in the world, parents, parents and children. Before I let you go, Dr. Conti, where can I point my listeners if they want to either buy books or learn more from you? Um, I'd love for people to, um, you know, all my books are on Amazon, but I'd love for you to check out the YouTube channel if you can. Um, the YouTube channel is a free resource um, for people. And hey, Christmas is coming. So maybe getting some of those walking through anger books for the holidays, that'd be a good, good thing. Good gift. Awesome. Dr. Conti, thank you. This was fun. Thanks so much, guys. 